Awesome. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab those and you can turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, the book of Ephesians chapter 1. We're in part 2 of our study in the book of Ephesians. Sit, walk, stand. And I'll get there in just a moment. But as we begin today, I want to open with a story about two men. They're not from New Zealand, but they are from the United Kingdom. Their names are Reg Mead and Richard Miles. And in the spring of 2012, all of their wildest dreams came true. Reg Mead and Richard Miles, they were treasure hunters. And they had gotten a tip from a farmer's daughter who had said that her dad had discovered some gold coins, or some old coins rather, um, in the island of Jersey, which is an island near the United Kingdom. And so they went to the man and they talked about this, this farmer and these two treasure hunters, and they kind of decided, hey, if we find this treasure, here's how we're going to split it 50-50 or whatever. And so they started to dig. Well, eventually they discovered uh, one of the largest treasure hoards ever discovered, and it was 70,000 gold coins from 50 BC. And, and uh, it was, it's believed that Julius Caesar, when he invaded uh, this tribe, buried all of these coins. And people started to estimate, and they discovered that this treasure uh, is valued at 12 to 17 million dollars. Pretty good. And what I tell you this story to tell you is that I really believe that every human being in our heart of hearts is a treasure hunter. Now, I don't believe that every human being has a metal detector, although that I'm sure that some of us in this room do. But every human being is searching for something. We, we have this desire in our heart for meaning and for purpose, for peace and for hope and for joy. And, and there are those of us here uh, who are followers of Jesus. In fact, many of us are followers of Jesus. And we know that that treasure is found in a relationship with Christ. But what's interesting is that Paul, he writes the book of Ephesians. And in the very beginning of the book of Ephesians, he talks about the fact that with a relationship with God, we have an unimaginable spiritual treasure. But, but he's writing to Christians and he's saying, I want you to understand and I want you to be reminded of the fact that you have unimaginable spiritual treasure. But I want to tell you that if you're here, even if you don't know Jesus, if you're just searching and you're trying to explore and figure out what it means to be a Christian, I want you to know that, that a treasure in a relationship with Christ is not far from you as well. Last week, Pastor David opened up our series and he talked about the fact that in Jesus, we have every spiritual blessing, every single one. And if you missed that message, go back and check it out. But today, as we finish up chapter one, the Apostle Paul, he's gonna continue with this theme that as Christians, we have been given unimaginable spiritual treasure. So before we read, I wanna just take a moment and pray. Dear God, we love your word. And we really recognize that your word is an incredible treasure. And God, I pray that today that uh, your Holy Spirit would extract treasures from your word and, and help us to, to have them hidden deep into our hearts. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the Apostle Paul starts 
in verse 15, right on the heels of talking about the fact that every Christian has been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he says this, he says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So the Apostle Paul is writing this, and he is one of the most impressive people in the history of the world. He's probably one of the most brilliant minds to ever live. He was a pastor. He was a church planter. He was an evangelist. He was a missionary. He was an incredible writer. But perhaps the the greatest of all of his accomplishments was that he was a person of incredible prayer. If you read through the letters that, he, that we have recorded in the scripture, we see over and over again this theme that Paul seems to be obsessed with prayer. He seems to be obsessed with praying, not just for himself, but praying for the people in his life that he loves. And this leads us to an important point. It's not going to be the big idea for today, but it's an important point of application for us. If you're taking notes, you can write it down, and it's this. If we care about them, pray for them. If you care about them, pray for them. And what I believe is that one of the most important and essential things that you and I can do is we can pray for the people that we care about. I want you to think for a moment about the people in your life that you love. Maybe you're thinking about your family, your parents, your siblings, your children, your spouse, your grandchildren, maybe it's even people that you would consider to be in your spiritual family that that you uh, love and that you care about. I want you to think about your church. I know that there are so many people in this room that you love our church. You love the church. There are elders and pastors and staff and incredible serve team and just incredible people who love to see people grow in their faith that are sitting in this room right now. If you care about your church, pray for your church. I know there are people in here that we look out at what is going on in our world, what is going on in our country, and we get concerned. The greatest thing that we can do is to pray. And I think so often we get very consumed with life hacks. We get very consumed with uh, tactics or with policies, and we think, okay, if I can just make some little tweaks here and there, that's how life is going to change. That's how life's going to improve. And, and uh, even my wife Katie and I, w- w- when it comes to parenting, we're always interested in like, what can we do to improve our parenting? What can we do to improve our family? What are these little tweaks that we can make? What are these latest things that are happening? And maybe we could uh, add these to really hopefully uh, help improve uh, what's going on with our kids. And I think all those things are really good and they're important, but what Paul seems to believe as we look at his writing, he seems to think that the most important thing you can do over and over again is to pray for the people that you care about. And I want to tell you, if you care about them, then the best thing you can do is to pray for them. Katie and I, we believe that one of the most important moments in our day with our boys is those five minutes right before they go to sleep. And we're gonna finally get a break for them for the next 12 hours. I mean, (laughs) it's not what I meant to say. And we have an opportunity to pray for them 
for their future. That's what I meant to say. So we, we have this moment, and we've done it every night in both of our boys' lives where we uh, get next to their bed, and we put our hands upon them, and we pray for their future. We pray that they would encounter Jesus at an early age. We pray for their future friendships and the future relationships in their life, that God would guide them and direct them and help them. And we really believe that that moment is powerful because prayer is powerful because we're inviting God to move in a powerful way in their life. And and it's so special. Our three-year-old Isaiah, um, he has started getting to the point where after we pray, he says, I want to pray now. And so he loves it. And he always has the same prayer. Um, he, He just believes in, like, if it's working for him, just stick with it. And he always prays and he says, dear God, thank you for our food. Amen. Thank you for the playground. Amen. I hope I will pray. Amen. That's his prayer. Solid. But recently, uh, he has changed it, and he has decided he thinks he's really cool and original, and so he's not saying amen anymore. He says amon. And he always looks at us afterwards, and he says, I say amon. He thinks he's, like, really coming up with, like, a new theological concept, you know? But the problem is, literally this week, I was praying for him, and I was like, in Jesus' name we pray, amon. And I was like, oh, my goodness, now I'm saying amon. (laughs) If you care about him, pray for him. Verse 17, verse 17 is the key verse in the passage. It's really the one that everything else hinges around. And let's read it together. It says, Paul Paul writing, and remember, he's thinking about prayer. Prayer is on his mind. And he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So so let's talk about this and deep dive this verse for a second. First off, notice that Paul says, I'm asking that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. What this means is Paul is praying that God would open our eyes and open our hearts. In other words, what Paul is about to pray for is not something that we can accomplish on our own strength. It's not something that we're just going to figure out on our own or muster up enough energy and strength to accomplish. It has to be a work of God. But Paul is saying, without God intervening, we are going to be uh, like that farmer. That that we're going to be working the field. And and we're going to be waking up and we're going to be mending fences and we're going to be planting seed and harvesting the, 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 the fields at the end of the season and we're going to not realize that there is an incredible treasure underneath our feet. And Paul says, I, I have to pray and I have to ask that God would be the one to move here, that God would open up our eyes. So that's what he's praying. And he's saying, I am praying that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And here's what he's praying, that we would know him better. Paul's prayer is pretty simple. The prayer is, I pray that you would know Jesus better. And I think this is really interesting. Paul could have prayed for a lot of things. He could have prayed, I'm just praying that you have protection from persecution, and I hope that happens. I'm praying that God would bless your church financially. He could have said, I'm praying that that, that God would protect you from all of the the sexual immorality that's happening in Ephesus and the idol worship that's happening in Ephesus. Those are great prayers. 
But Paul specifically chooses the prayer that he's saying, this is the most important, is this. I'm praying that you would know Jesus better. And so here's the big idea that we're going to be thinking about for the rest of the day. If you want to write it down, it's this. That in a world of possibilities, Jesus is the prize. In a world of possibilities, Jesus is the prize. We, we live in a world that is a world of messages and a world of marketing. And one of the things that I think about often in my life and I think about for us is that we're so in this world and, and we're so bombarded with various messages and the, the underlying sort of stream that's happening with each one of these is if you just can buy these things, if you can make these subtle tweaks in your life, if you could do these certain things and buy these certain products, or even if you could just discover more about who you really are and sort of live out what you really want to be, you're going to be happy. And, and there's this underlying message that you just keep doing this and keep doing this and keep walking down this path, and maybe at some point you're going to discover happiness and meaning in your life. And, and I believe that Paul, what he is trying to get us to understand as he records this prayer is he's saying, I, I think there's a whole nother set of priorities that we need. And the whole nother set of priorities is that we have to build the foundation and start with the realization that the treasure of our lives, the prize of our lives, is the fact that we can have relationship with Jesus and that you and I, we get to walk with Jesus every moment of every day. And Paul's praying, I pray that this is the treasure that we see. There's this beautiful story in uh, the Old Testament. It's a story about Moses and the people of Israel. And Moses was called to be a leader. And Moses, uh, he was called to lead the people out of slavery and into the promised land. And because of this great call, he had this very special and beautiful relationship with God. Well, one moment, God and Moses are having a conversation. And we find that conversation in Exodus 33. And it says this, Moses said to him, that's God, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And Paul, or excuse me, Moses, what he's saying is, God, God as, I, as I lead your people, like, there's some great stuff ahead of us. You, you've promised us the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. You've promised us blessing, but God, I don't want you to just send us toward blessing. I don't want you to just send us toward the promised land. If you're not going to go with us, we don't want to go. Because the great treasure is not the blessing. The great prize is your presence. And I love that phrase. He says, what else will distinguish us from all the other people on the earth. And I want us to realize, and I want us to have this heart and spirit as a church, that we're a church that we care about the presence of God. And I want us to realize that, that what's special about this church is not strategies of man. It's not a cool staff. It's not great volunteers, although those are very special parts of our church. But what actually will distinguish us, what actually will distinguish any Bible-believing, Jesus-loving church, it's going to be the presence of God. 
Because listen, we, we have great community at this church. It's one of my favorite things about the church. But you can find community outside of these walls. You can get online and join any number of communities you want. You can go to the yacht club and find community. What's distinguishing our community? It's the presence of God. We, we have great music at our church, and we're very blessed with an incredible worship team. But there's other places where you can find music. There's other places where you can have a, a great experience. A couple of weeks ago, Taylor Swift came and sold three shows out in Tampa. What, what's the difference between us and that? It's, it's the presence of God and like $5 million of incredible technology and pyrotechnics. That's the other difference. But when, when, when you log on to, to, to YouTube and when you watch a motivational talk, what's the difference between a motivational podcast and listening to a teaching of God's word? It's the presence of God. And I want us to realize that what sets us apart is the fact that God is walking with us. And I want you and your family, I want you in your relationships, I want you in every aspect of your life to say, what, what I want is I want God to walk with me. I'm hungry for him. And I believe that God will show up where he is wanted. And I want us to be a church that's hungry for more of Jesus, hungry for more of the presence of God. Now, as we keep reading, what we're going to discover is that Paul is talking about Jesus being the prize. In a world of possibilities, Jesus is the prize. But when Jesus becomes the prize, there are some beautiful realities that we're going to experience. And we're going to look at three things that we're going to discover about life when Jesus becomes the prize. So let's keep looking. Look at verse 17, or excuse me, look at verse 18. And it says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. I want to focus on that word hope for a minute. It says uh, that, or Paul, Paul starts talking, and he says, when Jesus becomes the prize, there's going to be a hope that goes with it. And so you can write this down. When, when Jesus is our prize, we discover a steadfast hope. A steadfast hope. So hope. I, I think when we think about the word hope, oftentimes we think about something that's different than what the Bible talks about. A lot of times when, when I think about the word hope, I think about something that I'm hoping happens in the future. A lot of times it's something that I hope happens, but I, I wouldn't necessarily bet on it happening. I'll give you an example. Um, if you are living in the state of Florida, the beautiful state of Florida, and you're planning an outdoor party, and you're planning it in the middle of summer, you're really hoping for two things. You're hoping that it's not brutally hot, and you're hoping that it doesn't rain. And listen, if that's your plans, like, I hope for you. I wouldn't bet on it, though. Like, we live in Florida. It's probably going to be hot. It's probably going to rain at some point. Or apparently hail now, okay? <laughs> so another example of this. Man, I am a Carolina Panthers fan. Um, you guys know that I love sports and I love football. And so uh, as a Carolina Panthers fan, unfortunately, we had a rough season the past like six years, and we had the number one draft pick in the NFL. And so we drafted Bryce Young from the University of Alabama, number one pick. I was waiting to see it. No, no Roll Tide fans in here. Okay, I didn't think so in, in Florida. All right, all right, focus back, focus back. But, but listen, I hope Bryce Young wins the Super Bowl for the Carolina Panthers. I sincerely do. I'm praying for him. 
but, but it's not something that I'm gonna bet my life on because it's a hope that's in the future. And listen, biblical hope is not just hopefully it happens. Biblical hope is actually the opposite of that because biblical hope is confidence. It is the confidence that God will fulfill his promises to us. It's the confidence that God is trustworthy. It's the confidence that no matter what happens in this life, I have a hope that is secure in heaven. And actually, hope is always tied to heaven in the biblical story. I want to show you in Romans chapter 8 an example of what the Bible is talking about when it talks about hope. Romans 8.20 says this, With eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. A couple of weeks ago, I shared a message on heaven. If you missed it, check it out on the podcast or on the app or the website. But in that message, we learned a couple things. First off, we learned that heaven is the resurrection and the renewal of all things. We learned that in heaven, we will receive rewards and we will reign with Christ. And we learned that in heaven, uh, we are going to see Jesus and walk with Jesus. And our hope is always attached to heaven. You know, if you put your hope on anything in this life, the best you can do is to say, hopefully it happens, but I won't bet on it. I mean, if, if we've learned anything over the past three years, we've learned that life is incredibly uncertain. And we've learned that there are some things that we maybe placed our hope in that aren't actually worth our confidence. But the Bible, when it talks about hope, it says that hope in heaven is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And that we actually do have a steadfast hope. And that when we put our hope in God, when we put our hope in an eternity in heaven, it's something that cannot be taken away from us. So when Jesus is our prize, we discover a steadfast hope. Let's look at the second reality that we're going to discover, and it's also found in verse 18. I'll start from the beginning of verse 18, and Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you and that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now, the first few times I read this verse over the past years, I thought that what Paul was saying was that he hopes we understand that we have an inheritance as Christians. And this is actually true. As followers of Jesus, we do have a beautiful inheritance in our relationship with Jesus. Ephesians 1 is all about the fact that we have this unimaginable treasure in our relationship with Christ. Even in Romans 8, Paul says that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But that is not what this verse that we just read actually says. Notice again in verse 18, Paul says that you will see his glorious inheritance. Not our inheritance, God's inheritance. And what is his inheritance? His inheritance is his holy people. And so what Paul is actually saying is, I'm praying that you will learn to see yourself as a Christian the way God sees you. 
I'm praying you will learn to see the church the way God sees the church. And God sees the church as his glorious inheritance, as his treasure. You can write this down. When Jesus is our prize, we discover that we are his prize. And I think this is such an incredible reality. Paul is inviting us to recognize that God, when he looks at you and when he looks at me as followers of Jesus, he sees his treasure. He loves us. He is delighted in us. Hebrews 12, 2, it says that for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him. We are that joy. Jesus told a parable that illustrated this. There's these two stories, and they're really fascinating stories. I'm going to put them up on the screen. Matthew 13 is where we'll find it. And Jesus tells this story, and he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought the field. Now, just a quick story. Every night before uh, we put our boys to bed, I always read uh, Isaiah, especially a a bedtime story, and I've been doing it ever since uh, he really learned how to talk or at least could understand a little bit. And we have this little Bible, and in it, it has this story about the man who finds the treasure, hides it again, and and then goes and sells all he has and and buys the field. And uh, normally, over the past year, ever since we've had our second-born Malachi, uh, Katie has kind of been uh, with Malachi, getting him ready for bed, feeding him, putting him to bed, and I've been more with Isaiah, and so we've read this story a lot. One night, uh, Katie came in the room as we were reading this story, and of course, Isaiah wants to show Katie that he really knows the story. And so uh, he's, we're going through the story, and all of a sudden, right in the middle of it, he just smacks Katie in the face. Now, I hate to admit this to you. This is not the first time this has happened. Um, Isaiah's got a little bit of a hitting problem right now, and we're working on that, okay? But we were surprised because he's, like, not in a bad mood. There's not some crazy thing happening. He just, like, hits her in the face, and we're like, buddy, like, you can't do that. What's happening? And he goes, well, the man found the, tre- found the treasure and then he hit the treasure. And we're like, oh, no, no, he hid the treasure. <laughs> Very different concept. So anyways, we had to correct a little thing here, here and there. But anyways, that really didn't have anything to do with actually talking about this scripture. I just wanted you to know that story because it's really funny. Look at verse 45. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and he sold everything he had, and he bought it. Now, I have thought for a long time that that story is about you and me as Christians finding Jesus and being willing to kind of give everything away in order to have a relationship with Jesus. And again, a principle that could be true. Jesus, in fact, said, if we want to follow him, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. But that is actually not the meaning of the story. You see, Jesus talks about this field. Earlier in Matthew 13, he explained that the field is actually the world. Now, you and I did not purchase the world to find the treasure, but God did. And what we discover is that Jesus, he hung on the cross and he died. And at that moment, he actually redeemed the entire world. And he redeemed the world to find the treasure that is in it. What is the treasure? The treasure is Christians. The treasure is you, and the treasure is me. 
And I hope this encourages you. Maybe there are some people here today that you would feel discouraged about how God actually views you. Maybe you feel like, man, I know God is going to let me into heaven. I believe in Jesus. But, but I don't actually know if God loves me. I don't know if he even likes me. I don't know if he's proud of me. I want you to know that Paul, he's writing here and he's praying, may God open our eyes, may God open our hearts, and may we see that we are his treasure and we are his prize. Let's keep going and we're going to discover one more reality that happens when Jesus is our prize. Look at verse 19. Again, Paul praying that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened, that we may know, verse 19, his incomparably great power for us who believe. So hope, inheritance, and power. The third thing we can write down is this, that when Jesus becomes our prize, we discover an immeasurable power. I think that's pretty amazing, but because I'm sure that as Paul used the word power, the, the people in Ephesus started to think about the powerful realities of their day. Maybe it was natural elements. Maybe it was people in their lives. And no doubt you and me, we could think about some powerful things. We could think about rockets being shot into space. We could think about people or nations that seem to be powerful. We could think about natural disasters or other things that we feel like are powerful. And what Paul is saying is, yes, that is power. That's a great reference for power. But he says, you need to understand that Jesus gives us an immeasurably great power. So whatever you think about power, infinitely more power, that's Jesus. And he says that that power is not just arbitrary. It's not neutral. That power is at work towards those of us who believe. So it's power that's pointed towards you, not to hurt you, but to help you. And so maybe you're thinking, man, can, can I get a little bit more information? What kind of power is this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 20 with me. Or excuse me, look at verse 19. And he says, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Humans have come up with a lot of great stuff over the past 150 years, but we still haven't figured out how to bring somebody back from the dead. And Paul says there is a power that raised Christ from the dead, raised him and seated him in the heavenly places. It's that kind of power. Let's look a little bit more. Verse 20, or excuse me, verse 21, it says, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So whatever names are powerful in that time, maybe there were governors, maybe there were prefects, maybe there were emperors like Caesar. And whatever names are powerful in our time, Paul says that Jesus is infinitely more powerful. He's the name above every name. And God placed all things under his feet, verse 22, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We have an immeasurable power at work in our lives. So I want to ask you a question. When you think about your life, 
What are the things that seem impossible to you? What is God calling you to that doesn't seem possible? I want to tell you that God's not going to call you to anything that's possible to do on your own. Everything that you do for God is going to require God's power. Starting at salvation and all the way up until every step of faith that you take. Every act of obedience that you make. And so maybe for you, you feel like it's impossible for you to even come into a relationship with God. Maybe you've done too many bad things. Well, the power of God's love, the power of God's grace and mercy can save anybody. Maybe God is calling you to take a step of faith. Maybe it seems like a massive step of faith. Maybe it just seems like a simple step of faith and you just think, I don't think I can do it. God has immeasurable power and it's at work towards you. Maybe there's something in your mind and your heart that you feel like, man, I just can't overcome it. Maybe it's a sin. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's something mental, something emotional. God has immeasurable power at work toward you. And I pray that today that our eyes would be open and that we would see how great that power is. Now, as we, get a, as we kind of pause and as we start to move towards closing our service, I want us to think about this for a moment. Um, th- this message, I love this passage of Scripture so much, but I've always been a little bit confused because I've always felt like, okay, it doesn't really give us any practical things to do. Paul's praying, and he's praying like something supernatural is going to have to happen for this to happen. So I can't tell you like this seven-step process, and your eyes are going to be open to see Jesus, to see hope, to see inheritance, to see power. But what I do believe is there are two practical things that we can take away from this that really help us as we move towards this goal. The first one is this, and you can write it down. It is possible for us, we can do things that make it harder to see and treasure Jesus. We can do things that make it harder to see and treasure Jesus. You see, this passage has been all about our eyes and our hearts being open to what God wants to do. And there is a theme throughout Scripture of us being doing things, taking steps that blind our own eyes and harden our own hearts. I want to give you just a few, and I'm going to put them up on the screen. A few different ways that we can actually harden our own hearts, something that we don't want to do. First, we harden our hearts by failing to listen and obey God's word. In Mark 4, right there in that passage, Jesus says, the one who listens and obeys, more will be given to him. And the one who does not listen and does not obey, even what he has will be taken away. In other words, when God's truth is shared with you, there's a great privilege, but there's also a great responsibility. When you disobey, you are hardening your heart to God. And so maybe there are some of us here and you've been listening to me this whole time and you've been thinking, I want to grow in my relationship with God. I want more of Jesus. I want to see more of him at work in my life. But maybe there are some things that God has instructed you to do and you have not been doing them. And can I encourage you, the first step that maybe you need to take is to say, I want to obey what God has actually said. And if I obey what God says, 
then I believe that that what's going to happen next is that God is actually going to begin to help us to walk closer to him. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, pride and jealousy harden our hearts. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about this beautiful reality that God wants to share his uh, glorious truth with us. And God actually wants you to know more about him. But what he says is, Paul even writes in 1 Corinthians 3, and he says, I can't share that with you because there is still pride and jealousy among you. Pride and jealousy harden our hearts. Number three, this is so huge in our world. Comfort and distraction. Jesus tells a story, the parable of the soils. And in that story, he talks about uh, a soil that is covered with thorns. And those thorns, he says, represent the riches of the world, distractions, and wealth. And, and what we see is that in our materialistic society, we can allow our possessions, we can allow our busyness, we can allow everything happening in our lives to distract us from the power of God. And then the last thing is this, anger and unforgiveness. In Ephesians 4, it says that if we allow anger and unforgiveness in our lives, we're actually giving the devil a foothold. So we can do things to harden our own hearts. Now, as we close, I want to share one more thing with you. Remember the story of the treasure hunters, Mead and Miles. They discover this incredible treasure. Well, there's one part of the story that I left out. The, the, the farmer's daughter that gave this uh, tip to Mead and Miles that they should check out this land where there's this treasure, she actually uh, told them that in 1982. And it took 30 years for Mead and Miles to discover the treasure. You see, when they went to the farmer and they talked to him, one of the things that the farmer said was, I, I don't want you to get up here and dig up the land, mess up my soil, mess up my crops. So he made a deal with them. One day a year for 10 hours a day, at the end of harvest, they could go look for the treasure. And so every year for 30 years, they showed up for 10 hours dug in the field, and for 29 of those years, they found nothing. But then, on year 30, they found 70,000 gold coins, worth 12 to $17 million. Now, here, here's the parallel for us. You and me, we have been given unimaginable treasure in Christ. And, and I don't want you to think that we have to, like, somehow work for that treasure, because God has actually given us right now, every Christian, every spiritual blessing. And Peter even says in 2 Peter that we have all that we need for life and godliness. But, but the parallel is this, that for you and me, our minds need to be continually renewed. We have a flesh that continually needs to be crucified. We have a world that needs to be continually resisted. And we have to keep showing up and keep showing up and keep showing up and saying, God, we need more of you. Jesus, keep opening my eyes. Holy Spirit, I want to walk with you. Write this down. This is the last thing that we're going to talk about today, and it's this. If we want Jesus to be our prize, we need to make more room for Jesus in our lives. We need to make room. If you want more of Jesus, show up in places that Jesus loves to show up. I know that when we gather together as a church to worship him and to study his word, Jesus loves to be there. 
I know that when I gather with my friends, when I gather with my discipleship group, and together we share our hearts and we share what God is doing, I, love that, I know that Jesus loves to be there. I know when I wake up and when I go out to my patio and I read my Bible, I know that Jesus wants to encounter me through his word. And for you and I, sometimes we have to keep digging, keep asking, and keep seeking. But as we do, we're welcoming and we're inviting Jesus to move in a powerful way. So I pray that we're a church that is hungry for the presence of God. And I pray we're a church that says, I want to make more room for you, Jesus, so that you can move in a mighty way in our lives. Let's pray. God, we do pray that the eyes of our hearts would be opened and that we would know you more. And God, I just pray that over the next hours, days, and weeks, that you would begin to develop a deeper hunger and thirst in our lives for you, for your word, for your people. God, I pray that you would move in a special way and do a special work. May the eyes of our hearts be opened. And now in this moment, I just want to give you an opportunity. And if there's those of you in this room, every head can remain bowed, every eye can be closed. But there are those people in this room that would say, Brian, I don't actually have a relationship with Jesus yet. You would say that, um, I'm not a Christian, or maybe I've walked away from God and I need to come back. Well, the Bible actually says for those who are not believers in Jesus, that your eyes have been darkened, that your heart has been hardened, and that Jesus is actually the one who needs to do a miracle to shine his light into your life. But I want you to know that Jesus loves you, and he wants to do that. And so right now in this moment, I want to create a moment for you to say yes to Jesus. If you're here and you're not a Christian, or you're here and you've walked away from God and you believe that you need to rededicate your life to God, I want to ask you right now, every head is bowed, every eye is closed. Christians are praying for you right now. But if you're here and you want to just say yes to Jesus, I want to ask you to just raise your hand in the air. Is there anyone here? Yes, awesome. Praise God. Praise God. Awesome, amazing. Praise God. Awesome, praise the Lord. Anybody else? I need Jesus in my life, either for the first time or coming back. Amen. Praise God, thank you. For those of you who raised your hands, I want to just give you a moment to just pray to God. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer. This is not magic words, but it is you saying yes to Jesus. Just say a prayer like this. Say, Jesus, thank you for saving me. Thank you for opening up my eyes to see you. I pray that you would help me to follow you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I want to live a life following you. Help me to do that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Hey, can we take a moment as a church and just celebrate the work that God is doing? Amen. 
I know that there are many in this room that raised their hands, and I want to tell you, if, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. I want to invite you to stand to your feet. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion together as a church. And communion is a time for us to reflect and make sure there's nothing in our lives that is creating barriers between us and God. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So as we sing, take a moment and reflect. If there's any barrier between you and God, just confess it to God, bring it to him, and he promises to forgive and to cleanse. Let's worship together. So as you walked in, you should have received a cup that we use to celebrate communion. Um, for anybody in here who is a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you can celebrate with us. Um, we want to ask if you're here and you're not a believer, um, just to let this moment pass you by. This is not for you. But we're going to first uh, take the bread together. And we read in scripture that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take this in remembrance of me. We've learned today that the greatest thing that we need is a relationship with God. And we can't have that without forgiveness for our sins. We can't have forgiveness for our sins if someone wasn't willing to sacrifice themselves for us. And Jesus allowed him, his body to be beaten, to be broken. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And so I just want us to, in a moment, 
as we take this, just to reflect on the fact that Jesus was willing to be beaten and broken for us. God, thank you for that. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. As we take communion, we remember that by your death on the cross, we are forgiven. We are cleansed. Thank you, Lord. Let's take communion together. We're also going to take the cup. After supper, Jesus took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The new covenant, it's not a covenant of law. It's not a covenant of our performance. It's a covenant of grace. It's a covenant of God finishing the work for us. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. So Jesus, we thank you for the gift of grace. We thank you for the gift of the fact that you are committed to us, that you are walking with us. And as we take this, we remember what you've done. Let's take the cup together. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until his coming. So we look back at what Jesus has done and we look forward to him coming back. Thank you, Jesus. As we close, three things. We have our offering boxes in the back and you can also give online. I'm so grateful for giving to the work of the Lord. Also, we have a prayer team down front. Listen, I know there are many of you who raised your hands and God is moving in your life. And when God is moving in your life, I just wanna encourage you to take a step towards him. Please, if you raise your hands, come down. I would love to talk with you. One of our prayer team would love to talk with you. And if you have any prayer needs at all, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual needs, we'd love to pray. And then lastly, I wanna encourage us, if you're new, uh, you can head out to the New to Calvary, which is out there in the um, center ring. And also don't forget Brent and Heather are out there as well. So we love you. God bless you. Have a great, great weekend. We'll see you next time. Peace.